1: Good morning! It is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, as always, we have a great show ahead for you. Uh, The second part of our show is going to have been pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any phone calls, but uh, it's a very good show. We'll be talking to Dr. Randall Smith. He's a full professor with tenure at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. He holds a Ph.D. in Medieval Studies and Philosophy, an MMS from the University of Notre Dame, and an M.A. in Theology from the University of Dallas. His fields of interest include Moral Theology, Patristic Theology, and Medieval Theology, Ancient and Medieval Philosophy, and Faith and Culture Theology and Science. And we're going to talk to him about how all these are influenced together, but also we're going to talk a little bit about his article in The Catholic Thing entitled, The Chicago Way versus The Catholic Way. But this part of the show is live, so if there's something going on in your parish and you would like to talk to us about it, feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. I'm joined this morning in the studio by our president, Dennis Maka. Dennis, how are you?
2: Good morning, Deacon Mike. I'm doing very well. Very well, worked uh, Just a bright and sunny day. Yeah, I uh, kind of wish it would snow, though. You know, it would be really nice. <laughs> I kind of, it would be nice to have a, a snow. Although I don't think it would make to the earth as a snow right now. But uh, you know, a nice snow would would be kind of nice. Is that too much to ask?
1: Uh, it all depends who you're asking. <laughs> How's uh, that for an intro? The, uh, it's also a wonderful segue. Uh, I was going to spend a little bit of time talking about a memorial that we're going to be celebrating on Friday. Now, it's no longer known by its original title. The original tidy, uh, title was Our Lady of the Snows, uh, which is based on the legend of how the Basilica of St. Mary Major came to be. Now, this uh, Friday we'll be celebrating the dedication of St. Mary Major, and uh, it's been on the church calendar for a long, long time. But the legend has it that a rich Roman citizen— didn't have any children and he wanted to give his money to the church and so he asked for a sign to know what he should do with it and on a day in august on a hill in rome which is about the same latitude as we are as i was mentioning so you know it snowed on one (laughs) spot and one spot only and so, this is where St. Mary Major was built, dedicated to Our Lady of the Snows. What year was this? Uh, 300, no, 400. Uh, so, was it nu- wasn't nuclear fallout. was not nuclear fallout, hmm. no. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, now, there's really not a whole lot of things supporting that legend, so uh, over time, the feast day uh, or the memorial was changed to just uh, the dedication of St. Mary major. And the story of why we have the dedication of this church is interesting also because this was in response to the council of Ephesus, which declared Mary as Theotokos, the mother of God, the God bearer. And so it is the largest and the oldest church in the Catholic Church dedicated to Our Lady. And so um, each year we commemorate the dedication of that church because of its significance, because as I always say, there is no such thing as Mariology that isn't at its core Christology. Mm. And by declaring Mary the mother of God, what it tells us is, of course, that Jesus is God, fully human, fully divine, Amen. which was one of the other things that came out of the Council of Ephesus, the hypostatic union. So, uh, also, I want to welcome Deacon Robin, who is on the phone with us. Uh, Deacon Robin, how are you this morning? I'm great, Deacon
3: Mike. How about yourself?
1: I am doing great. Now, You all just had the family retreat up there in Central Texas. You want to give us an update how that went?
3: Yes, yes. No, it it was awesome. We had it at St. Louis Catholic Church in Waco. We started off with Mass and adoration and confessions and uh, transitioned over to their activity center to uh, hear three speakers during the day. Uh, We had... 26 families that had signed up, and I think we actually had near that actually showed up, mm-hmm. um, about 48 adults, fifty-four, fifty-five kids from 6 months old to 15 years old. So it was a very active day. We had some great volunteers that uh, took care of kids programs. They got to play some. They got some good catechesis, and the parents uh, got to focus on uh learning and growing in their faith so they could help their family to to grow in their faith as well Uh, i want to thank a few people real quickly Uh, as i said we had it at saint louis catholic church in waco and big 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 thank you to father ryan and father miguel who's the pastor and associate pastor there Mm -hmm. without them you know it wouldn't have happened we their facilities were perfect for us to have this event there Uh, also uh, javier Delva Garza, who's the uh, uh, head of youth ministry there, he was kind of my co-planning uh, lead, and uh, Javier has done a lot of work with youth, and he focused on all the youth programs. Uh, we also had uh, Father Timothy Vaybrick from West and Father Walter from uh, from Tours come out and help us with confessions. Uh, the uh, also the St. Louis Knights they they donated our lunch for all those people It with 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 volunteers
2: yeah it was amazing about
3: 130 people they fed us hamburgers hot dogs uh sausage wraps chicken sandwiches yeah it was incredible uh stayed there did all the work i mean just made it uh, a great a great lunch for everybody to enjoy Uh, also the west catholic daughters court uh, 829 donated all the desserts and, oh, my gosh, yeah, that we had twice as much as we needed, but guess what? We ate all the desserts. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it was a really well-received event. Uh, so many families just said there's such a thirst for something like this for families, and it was families of all types. Um, you know, grandparents that had no kids there that have all flown the nest. We had one single uh, single adult that was there, uh, young families, um brand new married couples that had, and maybe one k- kid, you know, so it was a wide variety and I think it met the needs of everyone that was there and the discussion groups and activities, everything went so
1: well. And I think this is, is so wonderful about having this, especially this was the first one up in central Texas. Mm-hmm. So it builds momentum. And, uh, I think, uh, you were telling me, you know, the feedback was just wonderful, Robin, what did some of the people tell you about the retreat?
3: Well, to be honest with you, Deacon Mike, after Mass and Adoration, you know, since I was kind of the director, I didn't get to to really visit with people as much as I would have liked to. I didn't even get to hear the talks because I was focused on making sure everything happened. But in talking with Dennis and, and some of the others that did get to visit with them, they really felt like it was it was just a blessing for them to be able to have a day where they didn't have to worry about their kids. They knew they were being taken care of. We reunited them about once an hour for a few minutes so you know they could catch up and feel comfortable. But just to relax and spend that time focused on family prayer, family time together, and our, our mission as Christian Catholic families Out in the world, how should we be evangelizing into the world? Uh, They seem very appreciative that we had the event. And uh, I'm I'm hoping that, uh, you know, just by the feedback, it was so positive, we may may have twice as many people next year.
2: Yeah, it was a really great event. And um, so, yeah, we want to continue these types of things as an apostolate and continue to do to meet the spiritual needs of our community and the families that are our listeners as well
1: sounds like a wonderful event
2: and thank you to you deacon robin for taking the lead on this because you were <laughs> we kind of dumped this in your lap and you're like um, and you trusted the holy spirit and the holy spirit really um saved the day it was it was an amazing day so yes. yeah thank you Truly so much a lot
3: of the holy spirit moments because it, just the planning just the the people that i met to, uh, to recruit volunteers. Javier, uh, especially, uh, we knew enough people from had enough connections that uh, it, it just kind of all came together, and it was just clear that the Holy Spirit was leading us throughout the whole the whole process.
2: It was very nice. Uh, in
3: fact, in uh, in Mass this morning, you know, one of our readings for today is where uh, Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter goes out, you know, to uh, to meet him, and and uh, whenever he asks Jesus, "Can I come out?" with you and jesus says take courage it is i do not be afraid and peter starts to make the trip out and and then he he became fearful and he started to 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 sink of course and 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 when you go out on a uh, take a risk for the lord because i really felt like this this family retreat for me since i'd never done one or been to one before it was kind of just going out in faith i just could hear the lord saying take courage yeah i'm going to be there and And he was. We didn't think.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, you, Deacon Deacon. Robin, for the update. And we also have in our studio Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Thaddeus, how are you this morning?
0: Great to be with you, Deacon Mike, as always. Loving the shirt. Oh, thank you. Yes. It's nice. It's it's tropical. It's uh, healthy. It's green. It's it's really a nice uh, contrast to what we've been experiencing here with the weather in central Texas yeah, and the Brazos Valley. Yeah, it does not Valley. match
1: up my, the grass in my yard at all. No,
0: no. <laughs> well, I mean, I, there are some kind of brown palms in there, so that, that
1: looks a little bit my, like my yard. Yes. Now, uh, I mentioned that we're recording this uh, August 3rd, but we've had August weather for the last two months, so no, tell it's me really it really hasn't been any change. Whew. Now, Thaddeus, uh, what's going on with Victory Sports?
0: Victory Sports is moving right along. We continue to have families uh, register with us for volleyball and flag football this fall in the Brazos Valley. Regular registrations going on until August 15th. There are multiple child discounts available automatically applied. If you have uh, multiple children in your family that are, are being registered, um, we'll take... We'll take discounts there. I'll be looking uh, for parish presentations in the uh, area parishes these next few weekends um, as we get as we get closer and closer to the start of
1: the the fall season. And I First think practices September second. Oh, that's just down the road, mm-hmm. and I think that you know enthusiasm will build the closer we get to this.
0: We hope so. We we hope so, and, and we're getting excited about it. Uh, go to victoryyouthsports.org to register and find out more. Uh, you can always email our coordinator, Robin, at victoryyouthsports.org if you have
1: questions. And I encourage everyone to, if you have kids, sign them up because it's always nice if we're able to do things as a parish. And this is one of the thing goals behind Victory Sports is mm-hmm. to come together as a parish
0: as a parish family, yes. right? We want those. We want yes. those families to be connected to feel pride and love for their parish and get more involved in their parish. And and this is one of the outcomes that we hope for from uh, from Victory Sports. So again, check it out, victoryyouthsports.org. Follow us on Facebook at Victory Youth Sports, and uh, come
1: join us. Very good. And uh, as I mentioned. Uh In the second part of the show, it's pre-recorded, so you won't be able to call in. Um, Our guest is Dr. Randall Smith, who is a professor down at the University of St. Thomas of Houston, and we're going to be talking a little bit about moral theology and about his article, The Chicago Way versus the Catholic Way. And uh, don't go away. We'll be back shortly, and uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Randall Smith. We'll be right back.
3: And we
1: are back. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais, and as promised, we're going to be talking with Dr. Randall Smith. He is a full professor with tenure at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. He has a Ph.D. in medieval studies and philosophy from the, uh, and an MMS from the University of Notre Dame, as well as an M.A. in theology from the University of Dallas. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, you have a rather broad field of interest, uh, moral theology, patristic and uh, medieval theology, ancient and medieval philosophy, and faith and culture, which, of course, uh, is an interesting topic all by itself. But also it says theology and science. So there's all kinds of topics that we can probably talk about. But I thought, starting out, if you'll just introduce yourself the way you would like to.
4: Well, the first thing you can tell from uh, what you've said about me is that I have no discipline or focus, I guess would be the point. Um, I scatter myself uh, widely. I uh, go off and study things that I find um, interesting. Um, So that's the first thing I suppose you can say. Uh, I I actually thought I would write an Article 1 – day that was just called, I have no discipline. And by that, I meant, uh, you know, I, I found it hard to stick with one discipline. I got my uh, BA uh, bachelor's degree in science, actually, uh, I majored in chemistry. Um, but then I went off, I had, I had, at that time, I converted to Catholicism when I was in uh, college. So I uh, went off to sort of very idealistically to study my faith uh, at the University of Dallas. And so I did uh, a whole bunch of courses there in both philosophy and theology. And actually, I just used that time to kind of sit in on all sorts of courses as much as I could uh, to try to fill in, you know, liberal arts education that I kind of hadn't gotten where I studied and that was very wonderful. But after a while, then I had to go, and so I taught uh, high school for actually for two years um, in the, in the East Coast, and then I came back and did my uh, PhD, my master's degree, my PhD at Notre Dame.
1: Now, um, totally aside. Now, beginning with a degree in chemistry, isn't that the new path to the papacy? Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it could be. I mean, I can't. Uh, I can say, in all honesty, it's not going to be my path. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I have a delightful, lovely wife, um, who is, um, everyone admits all my best friends and she is my better half. And, um, so, uh, when I go to conferences or, you know, parties or something, I say, hi, my name's Randall Smith here. Talk to my wife. Um, because she'll make a much better first impression than I will. And people meet her and they say, oh, what a wonderful young man, you know, a wonderful man, you gentleman. he is, um. But anyway, so, uh, yes, it will not be my path
1: <laughs> to the uh, papacy. Uh, now, you had mentioned that uh, at the University of Dallas, one of the plans was for you to dive deeper into your faith. Mm. What was your faith like, li- uh, life like as a young person?
4: Well, as I, 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 people ask me, like, what did you convert from? And uh, I tell them as honestly as I can, I converted from nothing. I, I had become, uh, I was raised sort of nominally Methodist. I, I, I mean, as no uh, slam against the Methodists. I just mean that I was, you know, my family wasn't particularly devoted to their uh, Methodist faith. I think it was just the church my parents happened to go to. And when that was kind of the civil religion of America, you know, that you had to go to a church, they kind of did. And in the 70s, as that um, died away, they no longer did and sort of became um, anti-organized religion in many ways, kind of new agey. And, um, so I, and of course I was as a young person, completely happy not to waste a Sunday doing any of that foolishness. And so when I went off to college, uh, again, I was a basic, your normal, basic secular humanist, um, you know, high school kid who was going into college and, you know, reading things like Plato and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas for the first time in my life, you know, having hit up against actual interesting thinkers who wrote interesting things.
1: This is one of the things that I find alarming about most educations today is that the exposure to great thought tends not to be as prevalent as it used to be.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, that's putting it mildly. I, Think uh, not only not as prevalent, one might say, almost uh, gone entirely, uh, has disappeared from the uh, um, from the general public education, and even in many Catholic schools, uh, the notion that you would read great works, uh, right, um, Shakespeare, Dante, Milton, Augustine. Aquinas is uh, nearly extinct, right? I mean, that's not. That, that, don't get me wrong. I mean, right. there are marvelous places. In fact, I was just having a conversation with a friend who has uh, is on the board of a marvelous, marvelous um, Catholic classical school, which has begun here in uh, in South Bend, where I spend the summers. And so, um, you know, there are these places of hope, and it's it's a um, going across the country. You know, so there there are people who are realizing, oh this is what I want for my son or daughter and are embracing it. And that that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I, I don't want to paint too grim a picture. But on the other hand, I think most listeners would realize that, yeah, the, the, it's a big problem.
1: But for you, exposure to these thoughts, these uh, ancient thinkers sparked something, correct?
4: Yes. No, I, my first course was, uh, in in my first course, I we read um, a number of ancient classical works, but in, among them was uh, Plato's uh, dialogue, The Gorgias, where he has these interesting discussions about with people about rhetoric and um, the nature of that sort of argumentation. Really, uh, when we say delighted me, and and I found tremendously enlightening because the way he took people and forced them to kind of think about their fundamental terms and break down the, it wasn't like debate club where people are talking past one another. It was more focused. And I just found it really, really fascinating and um, enlightening. I thought, this is important. This is something that I had never seen before. And so as I describe it, from those early classes, I, some people say to me, you know, how did you become, you know, a Christian? How did you become a Catholic? And I say, well, in those early classes, I became convinced through reading Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and eventually Augustine actually was part of that. But I became convinced that there were such things as truth, goodness, and beauty, that these were the fit objects of human study, and you should devote your life to them. And I said, and once I was on that road, I was on a road that really had only one end, um, which I didn't know at the time, so I didn't actually enter the church until I was a senior in uh, in college.
1: Now, this is one of the things that I find astonishing is when you look at the history of education, and it has always been from you know Plato and uh, even Socrates and uh, forward to Aristotle and uh, Thomas Aquinas there's always been the understanding that we can come to know the truth. And church teaching over time has always been based on the fact that not only can we know the truth, but the truth has a purpose in our life that when we talk about morality and things, it is based on that understanding. And yet, you know, in our world today, when we talk about morality, it is basically seen more as a decision that's been made rather than a truth that's been discovered.
4: No, I think you're right. It's one of the great uh, ironies of the 20th century. I think no one um, for the 18th, 19th, even the 20th century, would have anticipated that at the end, of again, this great irony of the 20th century is this, it's the Roman Catholic pope uh, John Paul II, who writes an encyclical, a massive encyclical, called Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, in which you, you know people might expect, oh yes, he wants to talk about the importance of faith over reason. No, um, he talks about the importance of faith, but it's really uh, an exhortation to the West not to lose its faith in reason, and reason's ability to come to the truth, Uh because that had, you know, the, as then his um, successor Pope Benedict pointed out this kind of dictatorship of relativism, which um, has taken over uh, the West in so many ways has um, really infected us in major ways. And one of the problems with that, you know, people sort of think, well, you know, everybody gets their own truth, but if we were purely individuals, you know, autonomous individuals totally disconnected from, you know, each other. That might work in some ways, but we are all connected to one another. We are social relational beings, as the Church has always taught, right? In, in, in an image of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we're fundamentally relational. And thus, um, we have to enter into dialogue with one another, into discourse with one another. And one of the fundamental things is, right? It can't just be your truth and my truth and his truth, whatever. We've got to get at the truth of things. We've got to get at some understanding of the common good, right? It can't just be like, well, here's what I want. It's like, fine, that's what you want. But, you know, people know this originally in families. I mean, all of us, when we're children say, well, I want this. It's like, okay, but you have to uh, understand that you're part of a family. You're part of a group and we have to think about the good of the family, right? And it's not possible that you can just get everything you want, because it wouldn't be good for you. You won't grow up into be a uh, flourishing adult if you think that way. And so we've lost, just the last comment on that, we've lost, I think, precisely, we thought, I think, or some people thought, that if we just had this moral relativism, it would allow us all to be, or would cause us to be this very, very tolerant. I think our moral relativism has gone exactly the opposite way, right? We're more intolerant of people, uh, because when they speak their truth, people want to shut them down, right? Because we can't have a discussion. It's just a question of each person's kind of will to power. And, um, you can't argue for some common truth that you're both supposed to recognize
1: well we can't even argue that we have a common grounding in the understanding that we can discover the truth because we're constantly yeah, hearing this you know my truth and your truth
4: yeah i had a discussion with a young man once and 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 i showed him that i said well your position is uh, contradictory you've just contradicted yourself right it was i think it was something along those lines of somebody said well everything is relative and i said well if everything <laughs> is relative right then that's a, an absolute truth that's a universal truth yeah. so everything can't be relative because that statement you just made is not relative anyway so uh I, it was something simple like that that you know it's a self contradictory statement and he said oh oh i see you're using logic <laughs> yes well i'm I move beyond logic. I don't, you know, accept the notion of logic, which I said to him, look, you just insulated yourself from all meaningful discussions to the extent that you do that, right? I mean, you can disagree with me. That's fine. But you can't simply say to any interlocutor with you whom you're having a discussion, right? I don't accept the principle of non-contradiction. You know, I can totally contradict myself and that is mean, you know, because then your comment, your discourse is meaningless and, the people on the other side will also realize pretty quickly that you're just playing with them. You're just manipulating them. Right. And, um, nobody likes that. Uh, they know, look, if I show you that your position is wrong, right? I show you that two plus two is four. You can go, Oh, well, you're dealing with, you know, logic mathematics. I have my mathematics kind of like, Oh, okay. Then just go over in the corner and talk to yourself. But you know, for the rest of us who have to do mathematics, we're going to say two plus two is four.
1: Or in the modern world, your logic offends me.
4: Yeah, and, you know, that, that's, um, and again, it would be better to say, well, you're, the way you're speaking, you know, it would be better mm-hmm. if we understood that your rhetoric is the way you're using your words is offensive or something yes. like that. I mean, again, right. um, in which case somebody might say, well, I'm sorry, okay, let, let mm-hmm. me think about a way I can say this, which is less harsh. Um, I have that problem all the time. You know, like, again, if you're sort of an intellectual person and you get into these discussions and stuff and you are working through the arguments, <clears throat> what a professor of mine used to call, the, he would use to say, don't interrupt the march of my reason. You know, right. um, Fritz Wilhelmsen at the University of Dallas was great. He would he, uh, don't interrupt the march of my reason. Um, and but, you know, you get into these arguments and uh, people can get overwhelmed and blown over and feel like you're not really responding to them or paying. And yet, look, we need to do that, right? We need to right. be good about listening and responding. And, um, yeah, I mean, these are mistakes that, uh, all of us make a lot of the time. It's hard not to get passionate about things we believe in. Um, and it's good to get passionate about things we believe in, but then when we're in discussions with others, We've got to discipline ourselves to uh, make sure that the, uh, the discussion isn't just about me expressing myself. It's about us having a dialogue, not just me having a passionate monologue. <laughs> yes. Right.
1: And so often it becomes us wanting to win a point rather than us converting art. Right.
4: Right. And, you know, again, most people have, even if you think they're completely wrong, there's Probably some element of truth. A professor of mine used to say that the the brilliance of Aristotle, one of the brilliances of Aristotle, among other things, was that he not only thought it was important to show why his interlocutor was wrong, but also to show why a sensible person might have come to the conclusion that they had come to
1: something that right, Aquinas right. picked up on also.
4: Yeah, right, right. This is why this is why, right, okay, I, I think you're wrong, but here's, I don't think you're completely insane. Here's why a sensible person, a rational person might have come to that conclusion if they understood X, Y, Z, or had these prop, uh, presuppositions, or had this understanding of the words. I don't think we d- we learn to do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult skill to learn. That's what you learn, I think, reading Socratic dialogues written by Plato and Um, reading Thomas Aquinas, too, you know.
1: I want to remind all our listeners who are listening to the Red Sea Roundup, my guest this uh, show is Dr. Randall Smith, a full-time professor with tenure at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. Now, Dr. Smith, one of your interests is patristic theology, and one of the things I find fascinating is that you're, both interested in moral theology and patristic theology. And one question I had is, how would an understanding of patristic theology inform moral theology as we understand it today?
4: Well, uh, you're right to ask this question. It's a good question because um, it's there's something slightly difficult here. Among the church fathers, patristic church fathers. They don't distinguish moral theology from uh, theology, right? I mean, you know, like from thinking about the faith in various societies. Now, they, they certainly talk about people's obligations. They talk about the obligations of Christians to society, to the poor. So there's all that, right? I always try to say about, for example, social justice. People think the tradition of social justice began with Leo XIII. That's a rare uh, of It's very important to go, but look, there's social justice all the way back to the very beginning of of the church. Okay, taking care of the poor, thinking about justice. Okay, um, but what's different is uh, as you get more university education, you can see this also with Thomas Aquinas. You get divisions. I mean, in in good ways. So you, I mean, you get specialization, right? So. In modern universities, if you go and study theology, you sort of say, well, are you going to specialize in historical theology, or are you going to specialize in systematic theology, or are you going to specialize in moral theology? Those are the divisions we make. And there's something good about that, but then you can lose the sense of the, of the unity of the thing. And among the Church Fathers, there's just this dynamic unity, right, we might say. So if you read a book like—I mentioned that I'm, I'm writing a sort of uh, introduction to moral theology called Christ and the Moral Life, and in parts of it, a, a, a central part of it, I have my students read, and in my class called Christ and the Moral Life, I have my students read Augustine's Confessions. Now, is Augustine's Confessions a book— devoted to moral theology in the way that most graduate programs or, you know, even courses on moral theology understand it? No, not exactly, right? Does that mean there's nothing in it that can tell you about the moral life? And it seems to me the answer is exactly the opposite, right? I mean, it's all about living the Christian moral life. It's just all bound up with Augustine's story, his prayers to God, his journey, his struggles against, uh, you know, the Manichae uh, sort of heresy that he had involved himself in anyway, et cetera. So um, I think there's tremendous resources in the patristic fathers, as long as people also then understand, but you're going to have to sort of uh, read it within the context of this larger discussion. And that's you, oftentimes a very, very good thing, right? Like they have a sense of the unity of the whole that in some ways we have lost, but I don't, again, I don't want to paint it too grim a picture. It's just that um, you, you have to be. Uh, there's tremendous. Let's just end by saying there's tremendous resources there.
1: And one thing, uh, as I'm listening to you uh, speak, is uh, it all. We were just talking about specialization, and I think in a way, you know. Christianity from its beginning was a way of life. Everything was, you know, this is how you live. And even in Augustine's confessions, it's a story of his life. And as he's progressing, basically in discipleship and the hazards along the way, the difficulties he had to overcome. And so it's a unity of theology, you know, how, how do I live life as a disciple? How do I get, grow closer to God? And so when we differentiate, well, this is moral theology, well, what does that have to do with, you know, my day-to-day life? You know, other than when I have a question. And so, you know...
4: Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I have to admit that one of the benefits of the way I got my education um, <clears throat> was that everyone who taught me Um, This wouldn't always be the case at all, but everyone who taught me ancient philosophy made this very clear about the ancient schools of philosophy, that when they were doing things that we would call metaphysics or epistemology or anything, they were always thinking about their philosophy, their philosophical school, as a way of life. If you were to become an Epicurean, that was to live a certain kind of life. To become a Stoic was to live a certain kind of life. Right, and so when I engaged saw Christianity, right, I also thought, well, this is a way. Of, so, uh, it's a, a way of life. So, one thing that I, I admit about myself, you know, and there are pros and cons of this, but I always sort of thought I always took the argument seriously. It was never one of those things where it's kind of like, well, Plato has this really good argument, and I see the logic of it, but. Who cares, right? You know. Then I go off and live a different way. It always seemed to me that everything was at stake in every argument, in a way, right? Like it's somebody. Well, for example, I I may have mentioned this when we talked earlier that that um, when I went to college, I was totally, you know, not opposed to abortion. You know, like most people in society. Well, then I had, you know, friends and read things and. And they convinced me uh, it's it's wrong, right? There's a when's the substantial change between non-human being and human being? I knew from science it could really only be at conception, and then I thought, wow, okay, well, well, now I have to be against it, right? <laughs> yeah. It never occurred to me that I would say, well, yeah, your argument's completely right, but I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, right? It was like, oh no, I I have to I have to change my life now because. You've convinced me that the truth is that this is a living human being, right? Um, whereas it is true, I think, for a lot of people, unfortunately, these are sort of intellectual games, mm-hmm. right? Nothing's really bound up with it. They could, you know, they read a book and they say, "Oh yeah, Aristotle says something, Plato says something," you know, uh, John Paul II says something, and you know, or they look at the life. Oh, here's Mother Teresa. She did some nice things. Yeah, but I, what does it have to do with me? right like now i'm going to go back and take my business classes and try to make a huge amount of money and you know have sex with women and you know do all these things get drunk uh, you know like live in society the way everybody lives in society this is just a this is just a you know hoops i have to jump through to get off to you know my real life which is somewhere else beyond this educational thing
1: i find it uh, interesting that you know when we look at discipleship. What it technically meant in Jesus's time was someone following someone to learn how to live a life. And so I would think if we are going to be disciples of Christ, it's exactly what you're talking about. It is everything that we're taking in is intended to have us accept a way of living.
4: Yeah, the Epicureans used to carry the bust of Epicurus through the Agora, through the marketplace in Athens, as a symbol, right, of um, the way of life they were uh, inviting people into. Um, And same thing, of course, Plato does with Socrates. Um, This is, you know, a way of life. And so Christians, similarly, although fundamentally different, uh, in a way I'll explain a can, you know, hold up Jesus Christ as this is a way of life you're entering into. Now, of course, <laughs> for Christians, the difference is this. Epicurus is dead. Socrates is dead. Plato is dead. Christ is alive. All right. So that life we're being uh, invited into is one that's being animated by a living Christ who sends his Holy Spirit uh, into our hearts. So there's that, difference, but you're, you're quite right. I mean, the, the fundamental issue is that we're being invited into uh, a, a way of life, but not only a way of life, I think a way of thinking about our lives. And that's something, for example, in my course, I try to get my students to think about the fundamental questions that John Paul II talks about at the beginning of Fides Ratio, which I mentioned before. Who am I? Where am I from? Where am I going? What's the meaning, purpose of life? Um, what about death? I think we have to get students to think about these fundamental questions as as much as we can. Because as I mentioned, my students look, if you think it's a dog-eat-dog world, okay, which a lot of people do, not everybody, you know, and they don't completely. But if basically you think it's a dog-eat-dog world, that's just the way you're going to live your life, right? If you think you're a total material being, then you will simply maximize your material stuff because that's just what will seem reasonable to you. So you have to challenge students on their fundamental presuppositions. We all have to challenge ourselves on these fundamental presuppositions, or else I just don't think we're ever going to get anywhere with these students, because again, they might listen to me, they might listen to the church, they might look at Mother Teresa, and they might say, very, very nice, but it's not the real world. It's not my life. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Because again, they're like, look, it's a kill or be killed world. You got to look out for number one. That's the only thing they know. That's what seems sensible to them.
1: And uh, I want to change subjects just a little bit here. Uh, We're talking about a way of life. And um, Mm -hmm. for the last 50 years, abortion has been a way of life in our country because of Roe v. Wade. And now the Dobbs decision comes out and we have this even greater division than we had prior to this because there's a lot of acrimony right now being breathed out on the part of pro-choice people pro-abortion people and so i found it interesting that you know we see churches desecrated we see you know protests we see all these things and you wrote an interesting article called The Chicago Way with the Catholic, uh, Versus the Catholic Way, in part uh, addressing some of these things. And uh, I think in part because, you know, we tend to respond as human beings on a gut level. And so would you tell us a little bit about what made you decide to write this article and what you were trying to tell people?
4: Well... Uh, I I think I've admitted in the article that um, my first reaction, right, to the the desecration of churches is what many people may have, right, which is, you know, I'd read about this uh, statement, you know, people were were seeing uh, around in Washington, D.C. I happened to read an article, but I think it's been said elsewhere, if abortion isn't safe, Uh, Hey, pro. No, I'm sorry. It starts this way. Hey, uh, anti-abortion people. If abortion isn't safe, you aren't either, right? And that would be uh, spray painted on on Mm -hmm. you know uh, pro-life centers and stuff like that. Uh, Well, of course, you know, as many people know, abortion is never safe. Um, uh, It always ends up in the death of a human being. So the notion of a safe abortion, but. In any case, my reaction, you were asking me, was, Mm -hmm. of course, hey, uh, and so I said, okay, here's the thing. Hey, uh, people from, it was, oh, what was the name of that group that was doing this? Um, Jane's Revenge. uh, Jane's Revenge, yeah. And I said, hey, Jane's Revenge, if pro-life centers aren't safe, you aren't either. Okay, that was my first reaction, right? Like, so at the church that I attend the Dominican parish, like, and Holy Rosary in Houston, they spray-painted, somebody spray-painted, you know, something on the front doors, okay? And, of course, my first reaction is, um, I find you, I'm taking you out, right? I'm taking you down, okay? So that was the Chicago way, (laughs) right? Because I was thinking of this scene from uh, The Untouchables, the movie The Untouchables where the character played by Sean Connery says, yeah, you want to get Capone? Here's how you get Capone, right? He puts one of yours in the hospital. You put one of his in the morgue, right? So my reaction to some of the violence is to say, hey, Jane's Revenge, you take one of ours, we'll burn down two of yours. But that's then I said, look, I have that in me, right? Like, there's no question about it, okay? It's just that that's not the Catholic way. It sounds good. It feels good. Here's the Catholic way, right? Somebody asks you to take the armor one mile, you take it two miles, right? Somebody said, you know, somebody spray paints the door of your church, you get somebody, as happened at Holy Rosary, it's fixed before anybody even shows up. They take one of ours, we build two more, okay? That's the Catholic way. What has gotten us to this point actually, right, what has won us, finally, after 50 years, is going the Catholic way, self-sacrifice, prayer, almsgiving, supporting women in trouble, supporting their children, and that's what's going to take us beyond Dobbs, right, is to continue focusing on those things. It's going to be hard, right, again, it's going to be easy to think we need to hit back at them, And I'm all for defending in the sense that, like, my editor, Robert Royal, talked about manning the barricades. Like, would somebody say, hey, we need people to stand out in front of the church and make sure it's not vandalized? Absolutely, right? But we can't start becoming—I have a friend who says, be careful of your enemies. You become like them. And we can't let that happen. We can't let that poison infect us.
1: And that was one of the things I was thinking reading the article. I think one of the detriments to the pro-life movement were exactly those kind of reactions from people that were pro-life, that would bomb an abortion clinic or shoot a doctor, that were actually playing into the narrative against the pro-life movement. Because you cannot be pro-life if you're taking a life. Unless no, you're doing it in defense of someone immediately.
4: That has been a very important part of the pro-life movement and needs to be part of the pro-life movement. I mean, I've heard people say these kinds of things. And the point is, it, it, every everyone I know and many people you know are always frustrated when people say, well, the violence of the pro-life. It's like, look, it's not that there's been none, but there has been almost no Right. Uh, violence of the sort that people are talking about, bombing, abortion clinics, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And whenever it's happened, all the pro-life leaders, everybody across the board always says, that's not us. Mm-hmm. This is totally wrong. We absolutely don't, which has not been the case, of course, with violence against the uh, uh, pro-life centers. Right. People have been happy that, uh, you know, they they're spray painting and they're doing bad things, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas when uh, people acted against abortion clinics, eh, everybody said, that's not what we do. And it's very hard to resist that temptation. I get it. But I still think that what is going to win the day for us and has been winning hearts and minds eventually, slowly in God's time, has been doing it the Catholic way.
1: And I think this is one of the things that I find so positive about the pro-life movement is the impact of how it has been done on young people. Because young people have seen that they're making a positive impact in the pro-life movement because it's about prayer. It's about persistence. it's about you know standing up for the truth without violence.
4: Yeah, and I think in the long run, again, you have to think about what you are really teaching, what you're implanting, what seed you're implanting in these young people. Eventually, the people, many, most of the people who are spray painting, uh, you know, women's care centers, et cetera, et cetera, will come to realize. I was just a kid, you know, in other words, many kids when they're young, soap windows, toilet papers, people's houses, and they get older and they realize, wow, I I was sort of a jerk, you know, what a a childish thing to do. One can hope that many of these people will similarly, you know, in a couple of years will say, wow, I was such a dope, right? Similarly, all these women who are showing up in these costumes from The Handmaid's Tale, it seems to me when that show is no longer a thing, you know. Um, they will say, Wow, was I silly? Look, I you know, why were you wearing this red thing with, you know, it's like, uh, well, it was a thing, you know, it was a fad. And we were all part of the fad. And and yes, we went out there and even if they still believe in the cause, they'll think, well, I was that was, yeah, we we went too far. We were silly. Whereas I don't think anybody who, you know, Peacefully pickets abortion clinics, for example, to use that example. Let alone works in women's care centers and really trying to help young women. Will feel guilty about that at all, or feel silly about it at all? Any more than people who go build houses for people in Appalachia somehow, you know, ten years later say, "Oh, that was so silly. What a what a child I was." They say, "Oh, that was deeply meaningful, and I should get back to that."
1: And I think this speaks to what uh, the broader topic we were talking about. Uh... Moral theology, true, right, and wrong there's a right way to do something, there's a wrong way to do something. We can pretend when we're doing something wrong that it's the right thing, but ultimately, the truth will endure, and so you well, know, that's
4: got yeah that's got to be our faith obviously that that in god's time, you know again, if we you I mean, it was like the Soviet union, you know, who thought the Soviet union, the, the iron curtain was going to fall. And, um, John Paul II did, obviously, you know, he couldn't know, but he had faith that, um, if we just pray and, um, the solidarity movement is peaceful, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually the tide turns.
1: Now we're down to about five minutes of the interview and I cannot believe it went by that quickly. Um, as just as we're closing up the conversation, uh, your fascination with moral theology—what have you learned that you would like to share more than anything else? <laughs>
4: uh, well, look, um, I, 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 it's very hard. There's there's so much to say about um, moral theology, but, but look, the first thing anybody has to say, obviously, is the centrality of um, Christ and the Church. We need, as you've said, you know, to understand that what Christianity is um, preaching is a way of life. This is important um, for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, but one thing that we don't want to get into, and this can be a problem, particularly in our culture, is people only hear the negative rules, and when they only hear the negative rules, and they don't understand the positive goal right? It isn't a question of just not contracepting. It's a question of what's the healthy way of incorporating sex into one's life or one's marriage. And when we don't paint the picture of human flourishing, that's the point of those rules. And people only hear the rules, particularly in our society, they say, why are you trying to tell me what I, you know, why I should tell me not to do things I want to do? Why are you telling me not to do things I want to do? And if we have no account of human flourishing, we will fail, it seems to me, particularly in this society, because people are always very suspicious about rules in this, you know, autonomous individualistic society that we have, and their, you know, moral relativism. So we have to point out positive. John Paul II, I think, was very, very good at this, at always pointing out what human flourishing, like a flourishing human relationship, a flourishing, embodied human relationship would be. Um, it seems to me that we have to do that. Also, we have to get back to and understand the importance of the virtues and of community. Um, because I say to my students, uh, look, um, whatever I say, okay, however you might think about this stuff, it is not going to do anything. You have to go out and you have to find people, right. Who are living the kind of life that you want to live, And you have to watch them. You have to rub yourself up against them. You have to be around them. You have to be, as it were, kind of challenged by them and live in that community. Otherwise, you know, you'll just look back on the stuff that we said here and you'll just sort of say, oh, that was a fad. Yeah, that was some stuff, but it has no relevance. It only has relevance if it's embodied, and usually for most people has to be embodied in a community of support, or what Alistair McIntyre calls philosopher Alistair McIntyre calls a community of virtue. thus, importance of the church:
1: Yes, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. The idea that I can tell someone it's good for you isn't helpful if I can't show them in someone's life that it has made a difference right, and most of the time it's helpful if it's in my life because they're not going to be a witness rather than just someone telling someone something.
4: Right. And we always have to tell these things as people know. That's the beauty of I think again the church is to witness to these things, but then also say, look, I'm a sinner too. Right? Um that's part of the Chicago way like, look, do I have those thoughts about beating people up who come to my church? Of course I do, <laughs> right? Do I think that's the way to live my life? No. Why do I think that? Because Christ tells me that, right? not because I'm such a genius, okay, look, and I say this to my students, it's a long Christian tradition. It's not about me. I need to try to communicate this tradition to you. Do I live my life this way? I'd be better off if I did. But the truth is, look, I'm on a journey. I struggle just the way you struggle. Every day is a new beginning. We have to make that clear.
1: Dr. Smith, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. I find the topic of moral theology fascinating, but I especially like your approach of how that, you know, this is uh, intended to be part of our way of life. It's not just a field of study. And so I want to thank you for being on the show. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Next week, stay tuned for another uh, roundup. And until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up.